This podcast was recorded on the Gadigal land of the Aora Nation and on the Wadjuk land of the Noongar Nation. This land was stolen and never ceded. We pay our respects to the traditional custodians and elders past and present, and we acknowledge the power of truth-telling and voice in preserving the oldest living culture in the world. Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Clea. And I'm Ava, and you're listening to the Bimbo Industrial Complex. Hey, gay, happy Pride Month. Slay the house boots down and a work daddy, hunty, mama. So sorry we've been away. Yes. So we've been away. Clea's been on holiday. Mm. And being a capitalist. And Ava has been doing her zams. But now we're back. Now we're back and you're going to wish we were gone for longer, to be honest. We were on high slaters. Today we're Pride Month, Rainbow Capitalism, the Rainbow Capitalism Industrial Complex. Um, Woke washing, whatever you want to call it when brands pretend they have a conscience. Yeah. I did some research into the word woke capitalism and woke washing. The results will scare you. Mm. Like the origins of that word. (laughs) The results will shock you. But do you want to start with some... Pride Month themed recs for us. Yes, I'll start with Bimbo recs because I think we've got a couple mm-hmm. of things. Queer TV shows, queer films, queer books. Um, so films, Shiver Baby is really interesting queer film. If you haven't seen it, like I can't explain it to you. If you have an ethnic mother, you must see it. It's like life affirming. But yeah, it's like oh, a really nice. It's probably- so good temporary one and yeah. it's like 80 minutes as well so. yeah it's a nice like tight in and out perfect um mm-hmm. holding the man which is a book and a movie and I actually haven't finished the movie but I read the book and I really enjoyed the book so mm-hmm. would recommend that I bought it because I was like oh my god I love football and queer studies but it wasn't about football at all really just <laughs> but that's fine and um also, Paris is burning, kind of like essential viewing. And we'll get into this, but like all of the um, the kind of vernacular, queer vernacular that has dominated the world's stage lately, like Yas and Slay, et cetera, all comes from like the ball scene. And so you mm-hmm. must learn your history lesson. So Paris is burning, but I'm a cheerleader, iconic, Natasha Lyonne. Iconic. Love that. And Moonlight, which obviously is like, you know, you should know about that one, but beautiful. Um, And then Portrait of a Lady on Fire, that's from Clea. I also loved that film. Beautiful. So good. Like a classic, like up there with Brokeback Mountain, I would say, in terms of just like sad and like soul crushing, Mm. but so lovely. Mm. I love how this is there start off as kind of like controversial and then become like retroactively camp like um the l word like is so problematic but has kind of become like retroactive it's like a period piece same as like the original queer eye for the straight guy it's just like 
so funny. Yeah. And to some extent, RuPaul's Drag Race, I don't watch anymore, but has that same kind of like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you want to watch something that has like the glamour of RuPaul, like similar to Paris is Burning with the whole like ball scene, there's a show called Pose, which I haven't kept up with, but I've seen a few episodes of, which is very good. And then I had some other random wrecks. The movie Pride, which have you heard of this? Oh, it's so good. So it's based on a true story and it's about a group, like a gay and lesbian activist group supporting the, a miners' strike during like the Thatcher era. Oh. So it's just like a very beautiful portrayal of like a real life story of like sexuality and gender and class and rebelling against Margaret Thatcher. Isn't that something we can all come together to talk about? So mm-hmm. really recommend such a beautiful movie. And then we have some books. Mm-hmm. So I had on here Milk Fed, which is like not the most typical sort of queer representation, but I thought it was so interesting. Uh, then I also have heard recently about an indi- like an Indigenous Australian young adult queer book, which is super cool, called Ready When You Are. So mm-hmm. I will be checking that out. I'll let everyone know. And then this one also may be controversial, wouldn't recommend to everyone, but I've recently read the author of A Little Life's new book, which is called To Paradise. Um, I would say that this is less controversial than A Little Life in its kind of portrayal of gay male relationships, but, you know, still not without controversy. But it's a very interesting exploration of like a historical fiction world where same-sex relationships are kind of uh, normalised on the same level as heterosexual relationships. So it's an interesting perspective. I'm not necessarily sure whether I think it's like particularly helpful but it is interesting yeah it's interesting how like the one of the biggest critiques from a little life aside from it being like trauma porn was like what do you know about like queer male relationships so I'd be interested mm. I probably won't read another Hanya yeah. book. I don't think I'll do it. I don't think I've got the guts for yeah. it but milk fed mm. I also loved but it's such a big trigger warning on that that if you have any like literally any history with disordered eating I wouldn't read it it's so fucked up like yeah it's it's like so beyond fucked yeah it's pretty bad I mean it's worse than Leander Leandra Medine's autobiography and that's saying something um I think one of the reasons why I was why I and I guess we'll yeah this even this sentence I'm about to say Matt might be um have those themes in it but like yeah like I think part of the reason why I thought it was kind of okay is that it's so satirized like it didn't affect me that much because like it's so extreme and like um kind of like farcical in its like Mm. kind of eating disorders but also because it is so extreme like I would say yeah maybe leave that one if you want to and also it gets better towards the end so maybe skip the start if you're really desperate to read it but yeah yeah I remember like reading the first page I mean like oh what have I gotten myself into? Yeah. Uh-oh. It's like Bridget Jones' diary. You know in the, the original Bridget Jones' diary book where she, like, at the start, like, lists, like, all these, like, terrifying, like, um, 
like points about her life that are just like what the mm-hmm. fuck like how much she weighs it's just like ugh. but yeah ugh. so another book that I really enjoyed I read it last year it's called Cherry Beach um, and it's about these two women who move to Canada together and kind of explore their queer relationships with other people and like um yeah but I would also probably put a trigger warning on that one but not for eating disorders kind of like um addiction and drugs and things like that so so I also just wanted to say before we start that because queer studies and like pride and like these things are like and the gay pride movement are so there's so much to talk about Clear and I today are just going to focus on rainbow capital, capitalism, on rainbow capitalism, which we'll get into what that is a bit later. But mm-hmm. we'll, we can do another episode on like queer theory and queer history and things like that because, yeah, we'd love it's to just a that. wealth. But a we wealth just wanted to get this episode out during Pride Month, like all the other corporations so we'll start by going kind of a bit broad on just general like brand activism woke capitalism whatever the the heck that means and then I think we're going to kind of use pride month as a case study because it's just where the most farcical examples of like who on earth signed up signed off on this marketing campaign so we'll get to all that fun stuff in the end but I just thought I'd start with like a little bit of a history of brand activism because we often kind of see this emergence of like woke capitalism as a very new phenomenon, maybe in response to things like the Black Lives Matter movement or Me Too. Um, and those are certainly have accelerated a lot, but it has companies have throughout history kind of participated in social movements when it's been profitable or beneficial for them to do so. So I'd say one of the like earliest prominent examples was in 1914, Henry Ford introduced the $5 eight hour workday for his factory workers. Um, And this was like a really progressive move at the time. It was basically doubling what these workers were earning. Um, But at its core, and he stated this openly, it was so that they could afford to actually buy and drive the Ford cars and have enough leisure time to do that. So it was ultimately for the benefit of the company. And since then, we've seen like so many brands kind of use social causes in their favor. So a super famous one and one of the first kind of social enterprises, as we think of them in a modern sense, is the Body Shop, which was started in 1986. So it was one of the first brands explicitly started with social goals. And the goals were to be animal cruelty free, environmentally friendly, and inclusive of all bodies. And uh, for a long time or basically all throughout the brand's histories a lot of its consumers have identified um, like the values as the main reason why they buy the body shop products and then you can also have brands that are being like socially activist in a regressive way and so I think the best example of this is how good old big tobacco companies I mean if you've ever seen Mad Men like suppressing studies about the dangers of smoking and continuing to promote cigarettes even when they knew the detrimental health effects so it's really like not a super new thing um and where we see brands also getting involved in social issues a lot 
can also be um, when shareholder activism comes into play. So when the shareholders of a brand decide that there's a particular issue that's important to them, if they have a majority stake, then kind of the executive needs to take notice. Um, mostly at the moment that that's gearing towards like environmental sustainability, um, which is a really big issue on a lot of people's minds. So basically what I'm saying is, it's not a new thing and it's usually driven by some sort of profit imperative. But like, even though it's not new, um, it's kind of interesting that brands and like the corporates and the executives are starting to take notice of like consumer interest in like, mm-hmm. like there's people who will like actively boycott brands for like having bad environmental record. Like we see with fast fashion and things like that. And I think like the, the like big corporate daddies are sort of like waking up to like the business implications. So like, yes, brands might be becoming more progressive, but it's like at the end of the day, still to make money so we can get, we can get more into that. But yes. Where woke- did the term woke capitalism kind of formally come from? But yes. Woke capitalism. Okay. I actually have so much beef with the phrase woke capitalism um, and I don't like it. And it was coined by Ross Douthat. Okay. Uh, He is a, he's like kind of, I couldn't, I was trying to do some research into his vibes because on Wikipedia, they just don't say anything about him, but then put this like really like extreme anti-abortion quote. And also like, I kind of can sense from like the bit of the writing that I read that he's quite conservative. And he's like, yes, about like, um, critical race theory and like the and then the, the critiques of that article were like he's fundamentally misunderstood like conservative non-racism and I was like okay so he doesn't seem like the greatest guy in the world and then the other problem that I have with the word woke capitalism is that as we'll get into like the phrase woke comes from AAVE so for those who don't know it's um, African-American vernacular English and so it's like just co-opting that phrase and I think even more insidious that like it's been co-opted by like white conservatives to be like the woke left, you know, I just find that repulsive. Um, But there's also some more like progressive scholars who talk and critique woke capitalism. But I feel like coming from Ross Douthat. Ross Douthat. Yeah. Coming from Um, He used to be like conservative as. He used to be on the New York times podcast, the argument, which is how I know him. And he was kind of can, I suppose, positioned there as the, like, compassionate conservative almost. Like, I do definitely think he's, you know, a smart guy, but he's just, he's religious and, like, religious in a conservative way and it shows, like, so, I mean, yeah, it's unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah exactly and just on that yeah kind of it's a shame as well that the word woke has been co-opted in such a way to lose its original meaning because the origins in AAVE were used to describe awareness of important social issues and also structural forces that perpetuate racism especially but also other forms of inequality um so being woke didn't just mean like caring about kind of like silly little things that happen which is how it's often used especially by the political right now but it also meant that even just in your everyday life being aware of like 
structural injustices and maybe more kind of insidious or subconscious factors that may be perpetuating inequality. So it's a real, it's a damn shame that we've kind of reduced wokeness to this very catchy little term. Mm -hmm. Especially when it gets co-opted by conservatives, like Mm -hmm. who say stupid things. Yeah, like cancel culture. Babes, I don't think you understand, but. Exactly. So why do you think this kind of corporate virtue signalling has taken off so much in recent years? I think, like I said before, consumers are kind of becoming more um, activists in their consumer choices, especially like young people. So businesses and Mm -hmm. companies corporations are kind of taking note of that and are wanting to appeal to that level of um, political awareness yeah what about you absolutely yeah and I think there's also an added element where in a lot of situations it kind of seems like multinational corporations have more power or equal power to national governments in a lot of circumstances so I think as well it's kind of a consumer response to maybe feeling disempowered by traditional political processes like you know if my vote doesn't mean anything in the area where I live you know if they're still going to fucking repeal Roe v Wade etc etc at least I can boycott a product or tweet about a company that's doing something really good or you know invest in buying something that I know is doing something good for the environment or for a specific cause, then at least I'm exercising my power in some way. Which is so interesting because there's literally no way to like boycott like big companies anymore because they own everything. Like to boycott Disney, like you literally throw out just about everything, like everything media you consume, like they own everything um Nestle like owns everything so it's really interesting how like um and I wouldn't say it's slacktivism but in some ways like people are so quick to be like well I'm never doing that again but it's like then you're just you know unless you know every single parent company and you're like growing your own mushrooms from yeah. it, like there's kind of no way to avoid it which is which is it, it sounds like I'm saying there's no ethical consumption under capitalism I'm not saying that but I am like as an excuse <laughs> what I am saying is that like because these co- evil corporations are so like what's this word you know yeah like they're massive conglomerates and everything is agglomerating yeah they they've all glommed up so by brands like I remember when Nike um used Colin Kaepernick as a spokesperson and there was the campaign I think the tagline was something like um, believe in something even if it means sacrificing everything and it was referring to him taking a knee during the national anthem during NFL games and subsequently basically having his career prematurely ended and there was kind of a massive movement of conservative people online who were against the Black Lives Matter movement burning Nike products Um, and not only did this get everyone talking about Nike it got heaps of people buying things basically in response 
to support Nike. I know. Shoes that we've already paid for. Like, what do you think it does that to Nike if you burn their shoes? Yeah. yeah. And that's <laughs> the thing as well is that, like, these corporations are so big, like, like they don't really care, you know, especially, like, when we know that, like, brands like um, Burberry just, like, slash their merchandise so that you can't, mm-hmm. like, ever use it again and it gets sold. Yeah. Exactly. And so then I kind of wanted to go on a little bit of a deep dive to see if, you know, all these big brands are actually living the values that they purport to uphold in all these, you know, lovely campaigns. So something that I was just looking at in light of the Supreme Court decision is there are heaps of brands that purport purport to be working towards gender equality, yet donate a lot of money to anti-abortion lawmakers. Mm. So you might have seen headlines over the past few days of companies like Disney, Goldman Sachs, heaps of big companies um, sending out memos basically offering to pay for employees to travel um, to get an abortion if they live in a state where it's going to become illegal, Mm -hmm. Um, which is awesome, I think is great. But if you look up these companies, they're actively funding a lot of political representatives who are anti-abortion. So it's just, it just doesn't really make sense. Um, And if you look, there's a list, I'll put it in the show notes of um, companies that who have contributed to committees and politicians who push for abortion restriction. And it's literally like every company you can think of, like Amazon, AT&T, Bank of America, Boeing, BP, Chevron, Coca-Cola, Disney, eBay, Expedia, FedEx, Google, Juul, Lyft, Johnson & Johnson, Microsoft, Nazca, PayPal, Pepsi, Pfizer, Sony, Uber, Target, Volkswagen, Visa. Like it's everyone. It's everybody. So at the end of the day, a lot of these companies are not really going to invest in social causes in a way that's going to harm their bottom line. Yeah, exactly. And it's also so like nobody thinks, you know, like with um, a lot of these people who are like, well, don't worry, like we'll pay for you to, you know, use like our funds to travel out of your state. Like that's just putting attention on the people that will use those resources who might face like, you know, adverse consequences when they return to the state that they're from. So it's just like a lack of thought foresight into like the consequences because they're so desperate to make a political message so they don't lose consumers absolutely and so I suppose the corporate world's kind of antidote to this false virtue signaling is the idea of the social enterprise Mm. and this is basically somewhere in between like a not-for-profit and a traditional for-profit company so it's a for-profit company that explicitly pursues social causes as part of its core business model. Mm. Um, But this definition is very fluid and regulation of social enterprises is kind of minimal because they're usually not defined as their own legal entity separate from for-profit businesses and non-for-profits, which makes it a structure that is a bit murky and kind of open to 
vulnerable to, I suppose, being kind of manipulated and just used for publicity. Mm. Um, so that's very interesting. There's some um, brands that are like quite famous. I think Tom's Shoes is one of the most famous ones. Um, so they have a pledge to give a pair of shoes for every pair of shoes that's sold. You also have in Australia, you have things like Who Gives a Crap, the toilet paper company. Um, and one close to home in WA is Metal, which is um, an organisation basically that employs women um, who have experienced and survived domestic violence um, and supports them in like basically employment training um, and they create like gift boxes which you can send to your friends and stuff. So there's lots of these um, operating at kind of small local levels but there aren't so many examples of social enterprises at a global level which is interesting. And I feel like yeah it's also can be quite performative like those brands that are like will donate the x amount of this like I feel like it's always in the news like a new brand that said that they were going to do xyz to donate things like aren't actually doing it um I think Mm -hmm. the most recent one is Oscar Wiley and they used to claim that like they donated a pair of spectacles to every like every time you bought a pair of spectacles and then like they'd done literally not not that like yeah different to what they said they were going to do so yeah yeah there's also like you know brands can be really sketchy when it comes to like donating things the classic like are all proceeds from this will go to something versus all profits like you have no idea how much profit they're making on that they could be making one cent of profit and you know they're just using a certain product to get you to buy more things on their website or whatever but one company that I want to shout out that's not without its flaws but that kind of owned up to its hypocrisy is Patagonia no longer selling basically corporate merch so they were very famous for like finance and tech bros having the Patagonia puffer vest or the Patagonia fleece vest um two excellent items by the way but Patagonia's whole mission is kind of around environmental sustainability and when this was kind of largely called out a few years ago um, they pledged to only um, like do corporate deals with um, companies that could prove to them that they're actively working to basically um, make improvements to the environment so they stepped up a little bit but of course it was consumer pressure that led them to do this. Which I guess leads to this quite big question of of whether a brand can ever be truly socially progressive. I suppose the simple answer is no, because they want us to consume, which is never going to be environmentally sustainable. And also, in terms of class, is never going to like reduce inequality Mm. um and I just think it's really hard like as well because so many brands that are shifting like to become more sustainable or like racially diverse and equal all of these moves that they're making can only do so because they're such big profitable companies because they've been killing the earth like underpaying migrant workers doing all of these really socially regressive things in the past so yeah maybe 
that privilege, like choice is a privilege, like to be mm. able to choose between as a, you know, sustain more sustainable or a recycled item because the cost of that, that is more expensive, like does tend to lean more towards like, you know, people with more disposable income to be able to make that choice. So I think the kind of imperative mm. is on corporations to make ethical products more accessible yeah it's it's a difficult paradox because it's like you want to pay fair wages to support people but you know because wages are low you can't afford products that are made like through fair wages anyway you can listen to episode one for more of our discussion on fair wages yeah very true fair wages (laughs) fair wages (laughs) And also, again, like just going back to the profit imperative, like the shareholders of these companies are often the already wealthy. Like there are very few companies these days that are kind of like collectively owned. Um, And so like at the end of the day, the unequal distribution of wealth is beneficial, if not critical to the survival of most companies. Like they need basically the poorer masses to be given giving to the one percent to make a profit so Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah also just calling out nike again they allegedly still use sweatshop labor so do a lot of brands with like really progressive kind of advertising and marketing campaigns so just just think about that as well so pride month hey gay happy pride month um where this kind of you know is coming to the fore in june yes we're gonna make it in before july we were too busy um celebrating pride month we were too busy yeah being our last so brands love june BW, Yas, Yas car. Um, <laughs> we need to put the TikTok in of the guy who plays um, Remy saying all the different Yeah. Things. Yeah. Um, Clea's found this article like with a bunch of um, brands that are like Hungry Jarks. Hungry Jarks. Um, making the burger. US Slavey. <laughs> the two um same side buns yeah u.s marines guys if you haven't seen the u.s marines helmet with the rainbow bullets in it with the with the proud to serve written on it like that sends society back like maybe 200 years like maybe more like See, just- when i saw that i was like that is just so funny like it must be the onion like i just it didn't cross my mind for a second that it could be real. I will post it on our Instagram because it's like. It's actually shocking. It's shocking. It's so, so funny. Like a lot of these are just funny because they're just really clunky corporate attempts to appeal to a demographic that um, usually has a lot of disposable income and usually, you know, um, is quite like trend setting in terms of consumption patterns. I don't want to say that like all queer people are rich and all queer people are trendsetters. I'm just saying 
demographically as a whole that uh, those are some of the consumption trends of the LGBTQ plus community. Brands are always just trying to market to like the most stereotypical yeah, exactly like, like gay man. Yeah, and they're like homogenizing, you know, that's you know, or creating that stereotype which further marginalizes people who don't fit within that stereotype, which is antithetical to pride itself. Corporations, when will you learn? Exactly, and I think. So much of the messaging around Pride Month is like from a corporate perspective is so surface level and like it's not like they're going out on a limb and saying kind of controversial things. They're just being like, be proud of who you are. Um, Gay people should have some human rights. (laughs) That's true. There are like so many more substantive issues affecting like the LGBTQI plus community, like legal protection, equal access to healthcare, protection from hate crimes and police brutality, like homelessness. There are so many substantive issues that if they wanted to like actually raise awareness about something, you'd think they'd talk about what are one of those things. And like really sanitizes like yeah voices like marginalized voices within the queer community as well to be like just bad burger join u.s army and it's like <laughs> Ivan let me out there's literally people dying kim there's people dying kim, kim there's people dying yeah. um and again like there are so many examples of a lot of hypocrisy here so adidas like sells a lot of pride month merchandise but Uh, In 2018, it was one of the major sponsors for the World Cup in Russia, um, which is a a country that has really strict anti-LGBTQ laws um, that would apply to, like, fans and athletes visiting the country for the World Cup as well as Russian people, which is pretty gross. Um, And also, this is one that I found really interesting, the company that produces PrEP, which is basically um, a preventative course of drugs uh, to prevent HIV infection, is called Gilead. And it sponsored uh, New York City Pride a couple of years ago now, I think, um, which is, you know, awesome. That's great. But PrEP costs 2000 US dollars a month without insurance. And I just think Gilead could do so much more for the LGBTQ community by actually donating medication supplies or they could release their patents so that generic versions of the drug could be made. Like there's so many things that they could do other than just sponsoring an event, which is like a great start. But, you know, if you really care, do do whatever is in your power, you know? I've said it before and I've said it again, like we are past the need for raising awareness like we're all aware now do something we we have been woke that's why the word woke is like (laughs) stop it such a joke to everyone now because we're constantly bombarded with like Mm. all this messaging about everything that's wrong in the world but yeah what about the corporatization of the parade well the pride parade the origins of pride which um come from the Stonewall riots. Pride, the Pride Parade in New York City takes place like um, 
in sort of commemoration of the Stonewall riots. And so the Stonewall Inn was a popular gay bar in New York um, in a time where, and this is in inverted commas, the solicitation of homosexual relations was criminalised. Um, so essentially like criminalising homosexuality. Um, and then the Stonewall Inn was um, raided by the kind of plainclothes police officers. Um, and then this big riot broke out and it was kind of like a key event in the development of the gay rights movement because a lot of like gay bars in New York had been targeted by these sort of police uh, stings. So um, that kind of evolved into the Pride Parade and every year it gets like more and more commercialised and we see more and more kind of like corporate hypocrisy. So again, like um, 25 major corporations have spent more than $10 million since 2019 donating to members of Congress who push anti-LGBTQIA plus legislation, even though like their brands support like pride. And really interestingly in Spain, they have um, something called Orgulo Critico, which is like alternative pride or critical pride. And it was started mm. by... Um, queer activists who were sick of the commercialization of pride um, and I think there's also some countries where they charged like entry or admission to pride um, and so people kind of rebelled against that and interesting how like even though pride began from this kind of like as you say like very yeah like pride originated from kind of like this rejection of structural oppression is now been like co-opted by the oppressors themselves so yeah absolutely and that's where we get those amazing such and such through the first Brickett Stonewall memes kind of just bringing us back to the fact that although it's great that Pride is a celebration now it did begin as a riot and there's still a lot of really significant work to be done um so while it's great to celebrate it's also you know it's also a day for thinking and a month for yeah. thinking I suppose and I think now more than ever it is so important to pay attention to trans rights and trans voices in the queer movement and in pride um mm. and I think something that gets sanitized a lot by corporations um and yeah that's what I find so sickening about the whole thing is that like the way that like corporate pride and capital rainbow capitalism has so removed like actual activism from pride and mm. I just feel like you know even Slay Boots Gaga House the Mummy Hunty Down Work It Mama like that is that language used to have meaning and significance and now it's like a TikTok meme now it's just completely dadaist. <laughs> now, like, straight people are saying it. Straight now people are saying, saying the house it. down. They don't even know where it's from. Oh, yeah. no. I thought also it might be interesting. I might move this up in the episode, but um, <laughs> I kind of wanted to talk about, like, how capitalism feeds into the queer community. I've seen yeah. a little bit of discourse on TikTok about, like, presentation and queer identity and how that can be like rooted in um 
capitalism so I know particularly like for bisexual women like having the Phoebe Bridges album and the oat milk lavender (laughs) ice latte and the Lyrica Matoshi like strawberry dress can is like a presentation of queer identity but it's just like buying things (laughs) yeah and then there also is like an inherent privilege in like using signifiers to signify your queerness in like white corporate America when like there are people who will mm-hmm. die if they're, you know, outed. So I just thought that was a bit interesting. And then I was kind of trying to find like a source about, about that and like whether there'd been any kind of contemporary writing, but I ended up stumbling upon something much, much different. And it's uh, basically this book or maybe article written by John D'Amelio who's like a queer scholar in America and he's won he actually won Mm. like the Stonewall Prize for his studies but I thought this was quite a controversial idea that basically the emergence of a stable gay identity was made possible by the rise of capitalism and the nuclear family so basically his like central thesis is that like because um the family used to be so rooted in like in like gender and um and those stereotypical like heterosexual nuclear family roles when wage capitalism emerged people were able to create more financial autonomy for themselves but I think and I think this is a really interesting concept but also can be kind of controversial because it it rejects the um the concept of I think it's like perpetual homosexual or, or homosexuality or or universal homosexuality which is like that homosexuality is inherent not created so his mm. thesis focuses around the fact that it's created from like wage um liberation and I don't know how to feel about that because I I like I don't think that's I don't agree that like homosexuality is created but it is interesting how um capitalism can play into like the presentation of queer identity mm. as opposed to like inherent like homosexuality because you yeah. know born that way but I definitely think the first part of that theory can coexist with the idea of universal homosexuality or like non-heterosexuality mm. because you can definitely have the as it becomes as individuals kind of gain more autonomy, you know, over money and other kind of forms of power, then they're more able to live freely and express their sexuality, which, you know, obviously there's lots of discussion about how rates of people identifying as gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, all of those different labels is increasing. And it's like, well, yeah, because you know, people can get same-sex married now. People are, you know, while there's still discrimination in most places, there's now not active criminalization. So, of course, you're going to have lower rates of yeah. people identifying as that in the past. But that being said, like, a lot of this, like, um, kind of commercialization of the queer identity is so f- far removed from places where homosexuality still is criminalized and it and it wasn't exactly. that long ago that it was decriminalized when we think about it like you know mm. it seems so like there's people who weren't alive like when we're older we're gonna be like oh back in our day like same-sex marriage was illegal but like it wasn't really wasn't that long ago 2017 and I think yeah that's something that gets so lost in the discussion is that like a lot of like the discourse that we're having right now is so focused around that like upper middle class American 
absolutely you know sensibility when so much of queerness must intersect with race class gender identity anyway there'll be plenty of resources in the bio in the in the description for you to kind of examine that but I just think it's important for us when we discuss these things to to have a little bit of context Mm. yeah absolutely especially as well because a lot of these um, companies that we've been discussing are so reliant on resources and on labor from countries where you know homosexual activity is either still criminalized or still really marginalized in mainstream society yeah like a lot of these corporations have separate accounts for like the middle east and things like that which is Mm. is really It kind of tells you everything you need to know about <laughs> yeah. what what their actual priorities are. Exactly. So anything else? I think that's pretty much me done. Do you have a low stakes hot take? I don't know if I, I do. I do, but it's not actually mine. Maybe we can debate this one because I saw it on TikTok and I wrote it down because I was like, ooh, that is a ooh, hot take. Oh, I like I like the sound of that. Let me just find it. There's so much weird thing in my notes right now. Where is it? Oh, here we go. Okay. So I saw this on TikTok, but I can't remember who the the person who said it was, but I just wrote this down. And it was like, the humanities are more intellectually rigorous than STEM. And I thought that would be an interesting thing to explore on the Bimbo Industrial Complex. Because in many ways, like the concepts of humanities are very complex like like things like neoliberalism like that's a very complex idea like don't ask me what it means I don't even know you know yeah I think that's really interesting I think they're definitely rigorous in different ways like because the thing is with the humanities everything can be endlessly debated and discussed which I think in some ways makes it like more rigorous because you have to have, you know, like justifications to every possible kind of answer. Whereas in STEM and not to kind of paint all sciences with the same brush, but with STEM, because there are so many like agreed upon definitions um, and things have to be falsifiable. Like I feel like it's much easier to say something is wrong or right. Like there's less discussion I suppose Mm-mm. what do you think yeah I think it's interesting because STEM tends to brush off the arts and like when we see like university defunding and things like that the arts is usually the first to go but I think that the what people miss about the arts is that it's not necessarily like the outcome of of the research or of, of the studies that is like the most productive it's like the modalities and the sensibilities and the kind of yeah like that debate and the argument that you get to that process whereas Mm. like I mean I can't do a fucking titration but like you know there's a there's a methodology to that yeah absolutely Uh, yeah I feel like a lot of like what you would learn in a STEM course at uni is so process like process-based and also you learn specific facts and content whereas the humanities is a lot more 
about learning how to think and process information that you receive and like you know it's fine that you don't do that in the sciences at least not until you get to a very high level because in most sciences you do have to get to a very high level before you reach things that actually are controversial because you have to understand Mm. all the kind of basic theorems that are if not proven technically are accepted as fact and like it takes a long time to build up that kind of foundation whereas with humanities the very like basis of most humanities subjects are controversial and so you have to kind of take take a critical lens from the get-go but what I do like about the arts is that you can do none of your readings and go to the course and then just yell about um class inequality and probably still get a good participation mark whereas I feel like if you didn't know how to like you know put in an IV on someone you probably you probably couldn't wing that yeah absolutely you probably couldn't wing that that's what I reckon like (laughs) from all the like kind of STEM versus humanities courses I did at school and at uni it's usually easier to pass humanities but it's much easier to get 90 to 100 percent in STEM I've been saying this yeah so it's just it just depends on kind of what kind of like what you define as rigor and what you see as I suppose more valuable I think that's a really really interesting take especially because STEM isn't as objective as people think it is oh absolutely not and I think that's like it's so interesting that once you kind of get to a very high academic level particularly with sciences like like astronomy and physics and that kind of thing you'll find that like the kind of methodologies and ways of thinking are so much more similar between science and humanities at those super super high levels um whereas like our kind of like little pea brains are too small to kind of like think about science in that kind of way so yeah we have to be taught like you know the investigation process yeah physics I don't know I wasn't allowed to do physics in school honestly I'll never know force equals mass times acceleration is as far as I'm ever going to get yeah yeah but thank you to everyone who studies engineering Mm -hmm. physics Mm -hmm. like any kind of stem med just like anything because if I had to do it this world will be in shambles like I can't even I can't even imagine but also thank you to the people that wrote the um the thank you to the PhD student that wrote this really good article about the nanny that I read this week and about queer identity on the nanny because like what would I do without people who write these like articles that are like queering the x or like a deep dive into you know what's the one that we we looked at the other day and that the, it just had the best title ever i can't remember oh no nor can i the people who do like their phds on just like new girl i love you for that that's like absolutely what i would do as well because when i was talking to my supervisor about whether i'd do a phd i was like if i do a phd would you support me writing a paper on paris hilton and he was like if you could find an angle for it 
Okay. Stay tuned. Dr. Sanders. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm just too lazy. It would be kind of a sleigh, though. Oh, it would be Peace such a sleigh. <laughs> sleigh BMG. <laughs> Peace, sleigh.